If you have a Bible, you can open it to Philippians 3, and we will read the first 11 verses of Philippians 3. And you may know this, you may remember this, that the Apostle Paul is writing this letter from Rome, most likely. He's under house arrest there as he writes this, and he's writing it to a church, to a congregation of believers, a church that he had planted about 10 years or so, a decade or so before, and he writes to them with much love and affection and personal matters, and he asks them here in this passage a, a simple but pretty personal question, and the question is, what do you have that you cannot live without? What do you have that you cannot live without? For you young ones, you young disciples listening along, the question applies to you too, but I I would ask you to think of it in a little bit different terms. As we read, you're going to hear that Paul lists some things. He, He gives us a list of things that at some point in his life made him feel good about himself, made him feel good about who he was. See if you can do the same thing. Not as many as Paul lists, but, you know, one or two or three things about yourself that make you feel good about who you are. See if you can do that and think of a few things as we read. Philippians 3, starting in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead." The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these words of our God shall remain forever. Father, we pray again, as we always do, that you would grant to our hearts and our minds and our souls gospel eyes to see your good news and to believe it here in your word. In Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen. You should be seated. So, what is it? What do you have 
that you cannot live without. There's something, I know. This morning, as as Aaron alluded to earlier, the congregational meeting, he didn't explain then the purposes for it, but you know by now that we're going to actually vote to receive my resignation. Just going to acknowledge it. That's what we're going to do. And it's kind of an odd circumstance. I admitted a couple of weeks ago that it's a very un-American thing to do. We're voting to to acknowledge uh, my resignation, to receive it or not. A few of you in the past couple of weeks have come to me and said, can we organize a vote no campaign? (laughs) And I appreciate the love. I really do. I'm grateful for that. But no, you can't. It's, it's a vote to acknowledge that there's a path ahead that is good and has good to it as I and my family move into it. But as we do that, I'll take the opportunity to just go ahead and tell you some embarrassing stories about me. It's not going to be embarrassing to you, just about me. So here's embarrassing story number one. I think I was in about fifth grade, and my parents are here this morning. They come to visit sometimes, and so they'll laugh at these stories because they know them. Well, I was about fifth grade, I think, and one of my very best friends, Mark Carpenter was his name. I don't know how he and I came upon this plan, but we decided that we were going to wear wristbands. Not just a simple plan. We were going to wear two particular wristbands, and we were going to share them. And we were going to wear them All the time. 24 hours a day. All through fifth grade, we wore wristbands, starting in the spring anyway, in the wintertime. And my wristband was here, and his wristband was on his right wrist. And every day or so, every two or or three days or so, we would trade wristbands. But to do it, we'd have to be very careful because we couldn't have a moment when the wristband wasn't on. And so I would take my hand and slide it across his hand through his wristband and he threw mine, and we would carefully pull and trade wristbands. It was a sign of friendship, right? It was an innocent, fun thing that began as friendship. But for me, it became a cover of shame. And here's how. Through the spring, we traded wristbands. We kept that wristband always on our right wrist. Mark was a fair-skinned redhead. I'm not. I tan easily. I hadn't thought about the fact that in the wintertime you're not tan. In the summertime you are. I wore that wristband through the summer and I gradually began to realize that I didn't just have a band of fabric on my hand. I had a band of white skin around my arm too that looked very conspicuous and odd if one were to see it. And it became shameful for for me. I didn't want anyone to see it. And then school began the next fall in September, and I still had this white band, but going from fifth grade to sixth grade, you couldn't just wear a wristband to school. I was stuck, and I began to wear long-sleeved shirts in September. It was 118 degrees. (laughs) All of my friends wondered, why are you wearing long-sleeved shirts? What's the deal with you? Eventually, my mother, in great mercy, helped me to cover the white skin with makeup. (laughs) so that none of my friends would recognize and see what a foolish thing I had done. I had to have the wristband. It covered my shame. About the same year, a movie found its way into theaters, a movie that 
I'm sure that many, most, if not all of you have seen at some point, Steve Martin's classic self-deprecating humor, The Jerk. You remember that movie? I know you saw it. That movie had a funny scene, it had lots of funny scenes in it, but one classic scene that I remember so well, he, Steve Martin, the jerk, was beginning to renounce the wealth that he found himself in, the material wealth, the mansion, the, the things, the girlfriend, and, and in frustration he told his girlfriend, I don't need you. In fact, I don't need any of these things around me. And he shoved the receipts off of his fancy desk in his office and said, I don't need any of that stuff. I don't need you. I don't need any of this wealth. I don't need any of it. Except maybe this ashtray. He picks up an ashtray and tucks it under his arm. I don't need you or this house or anything. I just need this ashtray. And this box of matches. This, I need this box of matches too. And he carried the box of matches around with him. And I just need this paddle game as well. As long as I have this ashtray and these matches and this paddle game, I don't need any of this other stuff. I don't need you or any of it. And he began to make his way out of the room and down the hall. And he paused and he said, and this lamp too. And he picked up a lamp off the table. As long as I have these matches and this ashtray and these, this paddle game and this lamp, I'll be fine. I don't need anything else but these things. And this chair. And he stopped and picked up a chair. And his arms were loaded with these things. I don't need anything but this lamp and this chair and these matches and this paddle game and this ashtray. But I don't need anything, anything else. Only these things. And the scene unfolded as he left the house and walked out to the front. His pants had dropped down to his ankles because his arms were loaded with all these things. And it showed him shuffling off down the sidewalk. Pants around his ankles carrying these ridiculous items. All that he needed. It's an absurd picture, and that's why it's so funny. It's absurd because it's a picture of you and me. Oh, I know the gospel, and that's all I need. All I need is the gospel. I know, I'm a Christian. That's what I believe. All I need is the gospel and this person's approval. If all I have is Jesus and this person's approval, I'll be fine. I don't need anything else. Except maybe for this person's respect. If I have this person's respect and that person's approval and Jesus, then I'll be fine. That's all I need. I don't need anything else. Except maybe for that friendship too. If I have that friendship and that respect and that approval and Jesus, I'll be good. That's all I need. And maybe, maybe I also just need to hang on to the guilt of that particular sin. If I can just hold on to that guilt and have that approval and that respect and that friendship and Jesus, then I'm good. Absurd. It's completely absurd. Like the jerk shuffling off down the sidewalk with his pants around his ankles, we shuffle off clinging to Jesus plus ashtrays and paddle games and matches. I don't believe the gospel alone will cover my shame, so I need a wristband to cover it up. I need approval, I need respect, I need friendships, I even need my own guilt. And Paul says, what do you have that you can't live without? The answer is nothing. Nothing. There is not an ashtray or a paddle game or a remote control TV switch or a lamp or a chair. Nothing that you need. You 
need the approval of no woman, the respect of no man, the friendship of no person, and the guilt of no sin. You need nothing. Nothing. We all cover our shame with these wristbands because it makes us feel better about ourselves. But, Paul says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Let's just admit it together. Grace is too big for us. It is. You know, as good Presbyterians, we all know what grace is, don't we? It's unmerited favor. And let's just be together on this. We love the favor part. Give me the favor. But we want nothing to do with the unmerited part. Nothing. We don't want that. Because we have something to offer. We have some wristband to cover up in order to gain it. That's what we do. We we cover our shame. Grace is too big for us. But the truth is, grace is out to gain your heart. It's not out to gain your merits. That's not what it's after. We count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And so, Paul goes on here, surveying what he knows about worldly confidences and about gospel gains. He puts one up against the other and he asks the question, what do you have? that you absolutely, positively can't live without. From the vantage point of his house arrest in Rome, Paul here could reflect on the folly of worldly confidence. The folly of worldly confidence. Whether it's a confidence in ritual, or a confidence in heritage, or a confidence in morality or personality, or legal standing, all of those things had mattered to Paul. All of those things had made Paul to feel good about himself at some point in his life. He knew what it was to pursue confidence in worldly things. And so at this stage of his life, under house arrest in Rome, he has some harsh words to say about it. Paul votes no confidence in ritual He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision. Paul votes no confidence in ritual. Apparently, there was some version of the Galatian heresy unfolding in Philippi. Maybe Paul had gotten word of it. It was not an uncommon heresy to spread through the early church as Uh, Jewish Christians and and others would come and say to new believers, that's great, you believe, but now you've got to be circumcised. You've got to wear the physical sign of the family. And Paul had rebuked that with the Galatian church years before as people required this religious ritual of circumcision. And Paul said, no, that's absurd. That's not the gospel. And here Paul gives us a play on words here. Did you notice? He says, he refers to them as dogs, and it's an insult. They're unclean. They're not worth your time. They're evildoers, and he says, they're the ones who mutilate or cut the flesh. We, however, are the circumcision. He uses two very closely related words there. One is katatome in Greek, meaning 
cut. The other one is peritome in Greek, meaning circumcision. He's not going to give them credit for circumcision. Circumcision is the sign of the covenant. It's a spiritual sign now, not a physical one. He's not going to give them credit for the sign. He's saying, they're not circumcising you. They're cutting you. We love to cut ourselves because we feel guilty. And we want ritual to cover it. We want a ritual wristband to cover our shame. This is a mark of self-abuse versus the mark of God's covenant. It is your religious precision versus God's gracious provision. And Paul says, no confidence in the ritual. That's not the gospel. He says, if you're confident about how a mark on your flesh can please God, then just look at me. Because I'm covered from head to toe. I've been tattooed from top to bottom with all kinds of confidences, and I have gained in them Nothing. Nothing. And so he votes no confidence in heritage as well. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was cut. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's boasting for our good. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Whatever Paul's parents did, they did it by the blueprint. They did it right by the blueprint of the family of Israel, and they did it perfectly. Paul was a descendant of the first anointed king of Israel, Saul, the tribe of Benjamin. That's where Saul came from. And Paul was named after him. He was named after the first king of Israel. And not only that, Paul, we know from the book of Acts and some of his interactions and his missionary journeys, he spoke the Hebrew language. It was a dying and dead language by that time. People spoke Greek. But Paul knew Hebrew. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. If you think you're confident in your flesh, look at me. Hey, you don't speak Hebrew. And I do. I'm a descendant of a king. And you're not. We want some genetic trophy to point to. But grace is after your heart. It's not after your bloodline. And so Paul votes no confidence in heritage. He then votes no confidence in morality. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. You think you're moral? Look at me. As to the law, I was... A Pharisee. The Pharisees had what some refer to as hedge laws. That means they built a hedge between themselves and the Ten Commandments. They didn't even want to get close to stealing. They didn't even want to get close to coveting. They didn't even want to get close to the law, so they built more laws to preserve their morality, to make themselves Good little boys that behaved. Paul says, foolishness. You think you're moral? Look at me. I was a Pharisee as to the law. We want some good thing to do. We want to be moral. But grace is after your heart. It's not after your habits. It's not after your morality. 
And so Paul votes no confidence in morality. Then he votes no confidence in personality. Look what he says next. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. You think you're man of the year in your class? Look at me. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, Paul was the leader. He was the strong, loud type. He was the guy voted most likely to succeed in his graduating class because he had all the tools and he had the personality to go behind it. Everybody followed him. He was the one that mattered. He was the mover and the shaker. And he says, you think your personality matters? Look at mine. I'll go up against you any day of the week. I was zealous and persecuted the church. And it's rubbish. He votes no confidence in personality. We want some big achievement to stand on out of who we are. But grace is after your heart. It's not after your resume. And then he votes no confidence in legal standing. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Now, who of you would say that? I mean, imagine what you know about outward conformity to the Ten Commandments. Stealing, lying, coveting, killing. Paul said, as to those things, I was blameless. He really thought, like the rich young ruler, oh, I've done all those things since birth. What else should I do? He was blameless as to legal standing. We want some personal record to boast of, just like Paul says here. But grace is after your heart. It's not after your effort. And so Paul votes no confidence in legal standing. To all of these worldly standards of self-measure, the gospel says, stop and listen. Whatever gain I felt from these things, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. In fact, I count everything, everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. In fact, in fact, I count it all rubbish, garbage, smelly, stinky, putrid rot. That's what it all is. My sanctification began in earnest, I think, when what mattered to me at the time, the rubbish that I clung to, was stripped away. So here's embarrassing story number two for you. In the fall of 1983, I was a freshman on the football team at Highland Park High School. My athletic career had begun as the big second grader on the soccer field, as the big third grader on the basketball court, and as the big fourth grader on the football field. I was a year older than all of the kids in my class. I had started school a year late. Yes, I was that kid. I was the bigger, faster, stronger, better kid on the field who ran over your kid as you screamed from the sidelines saying, that's not fair. That was me. I was that one. I scored five goals in one soccer game. I scored touchdown after touchdown on the football field. I scored 20 points 
in the seventh grade all-star basketball game in the first half. And then my coach pulled me out and said, it's an all-star game. Give somebody else a chance. Through eighth grade, I was undefeated in the 400-meter run in track and field for two years. Undefeated. Nobody could come close. And as I entered into high school, of course, I expected nothing but athletic glory. And that's what I hungered for. That's what my friends could see. Until the evening of September whatever, in 1983, on the football field, on the freshman team at Highland Park High School, I suffered a knee injury. It wasn't bad enough to require surgery, but it was bad enough that I had to sit out the rest of the season, really all but one game of the season I had gotten to play. I couldn't play basketball. I couldn't do anything until the spring. Finally, track season came around, and I ran, but I didn't have any speed at that point. I lost every race. Everybody had gotten faster than me at that point. And the reality is the knee injury was just a, a, a black and white starting point. The reality was that at six feet tall and 175 pounds in the ninth grade, that was the best it was going to get for me. If you can do any measuring, that's about what I am now. Add about five or ten pounds, give or take, depending on the month. That's all that I had. And my athletic career culminated as a bench-sitting practice player on the basketball team, and that barely. All my friends were now six foot four, much faster than I was, far more talented than I was, and I amounted to nothing. All of my life at that, to that point, I lived on the admiration of my peers who had marveled at my athletic prowess. I was bigger, faster, stronger, and better than every one of them at every sport, but not anymore. Because on one September evening, God said, that's enough. That's enough. I have something else. What do you have that you can't live without? What are you using to cover your shame? Set it aside. Set it aside, or God in love will. In the folly of worldly confidence, it's rubbish. Because given gospel eyes, you will see that all of those confidences fade into oblivion in comparison to the power of gospel gain. The power of gospel gain. Paul has an advantage in perspective at this point as he's writing this letter. An advantage over us and what what he can see. You remember he's under house arrest in Rome. He's fresh off of a harrowing journey by ship from Jerusalem to Rome, having appealed to Caesar in the midst of a criminal trial. His crime, of course, was preaching grace. And now he waits to plead this same grace to Caesar, the emperor Nero. If you know any of your church history, perhaps you know Nero was, shall we say, not exactly favorably disposed to Christians. He didn't mind hanging them up in the gallows. He didn't mind setting them on fire. He didn't mind. In terms of worldly confidence, Paul is at this point facing certain death. And as far as I understand it, that has a way of clarifying perspective. 
Paul had a clear perspective at this point. And so he could say, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, all of these other things are rubbish. All of these other things are meaningless filth. After all, where do we find Paul here? Pay attention to the details. He's under the guard of Roman centurions. Where do we find Paul here? Remember the details. He's on the trial docket of the first great Christian persecuting world power. Where do we find Paul here? We find him pleading his case by letter to loved ones who were under the threat of some other gospel. But where does Paul find himself here? In Jesus. To be found in Jesus. That's where Paul finds himself. All the rest is rubbish. All the rest is inconsequential. None of it matters. I have suffered the loss of all these things so that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. And the gospel gain of it all, he says, is a justifying righteousness that is not my own, sanctifying sufferings that will make me new, and the power of a resurrection that will carry me through to eternity. Those are the gospel gains. There is only one thing that I have that I absolutely, positively cannot live without. Jesus. And that's all. That brings me to embarrassing story number three. Before I came here to New St. Peter's five years ago, I served for seven years as a campus minister with Reformed University Fellowship in Georgia. And the first three years, and especially the third year, were very sanctifying to me. My first night that I showed up at an RUF large group there on campus in Georgia, 120 students came to our Bible study. That may not sound like a whole lot to you, but on a campus of 3,000 in a small town, that's a lot of people in a small room. And I was excited about it. I thought, wow, 120 students. They came to hear me. There must have been some rumor going around campus. Maybe they all started to whisper and talk. Hey, the new campus minister, he went to Vanderbilt. He's going to have something worth saying. Come on. And they came. They packed out the room. But the numbers dropped, predictably. Not everybody sticks around for anything like that. And by the second semester of my first year, a graduating senior, a girl who was, had been in RUF for the three years before I got there, was graduating. And she was seeing what I wasn't really seeing. And she wrote a paper for a religion class, and she came to me for help on it. She said, I'm writing this, writing this paper. It's kind of a consultation on how to help RUF recover what it used to be. <laughs> that was eye-opening to me. What did it used to be? The second year that I was there, things steadied numerically, sort of, and then the third year, we changed our meeting nights because it seemed strategic as I talked to some of the students, and it was a bad idea 
by the middle of that fall semester, one large group night, 12 students came. 12. And my thoughts at that point were, I have a degree from Vanderbilt University. I gave up a respectable career as an engineer to go to seminary, desiring to come to work for RUF. This is what I wanted to do. And here I am doing it. I'm in a nowhere southern town with 12 college students who care anything about what I have to say. My life means nothing. The next day I called Bebo Elkin. Bebo uh, was one of the directors of RUF and a very um, respected and appreciated mentor to many, including myself. I called Bebo on the phone and I explained to him what had happened. And Bebo laughed in my ear. He realized I wasn't in a laughing mood and his laughing died off and he said, okay, so Colin, here's what's happened. Your ministry has gone from 120 to 12 in two years. Thanks, Bebo, for observing the obvious. He said, in your strength, you've cut your ministry by 90%. Thanks, Bebo, I can do the math. He said, at this point, you have two options as I see it. You can either quit your job and go start searching for another one that you can do, or you can quit counting heads and start showing students Jesus. I chose to do the latter, and I'm glad. Why would you put your confidence in the flesh? Why would you do that? Why would you cling to the approval of man? Why would you cling to the respect of strangers and even worse, to the guilt of your own sin? Why would you do that? Why would you hang on to your ashtrays and your paddle games and your matches shuffling down the sidewalk with your pants down around your feet thinking that you're hanging on to something that matters? Why? It's rubbish. It's garbage. Because by faith, you are found in Jesus. A few years ago, I shared some of these embarrassing moments with some Vanderbilt graduates. A friend of mine invited me to go to a guy's weekend that he and his 20 closest buddies from college had every uh, year, once a year, they gathered for a guy's weekend, and they invited me to come and join them in order to speak to them about the gospel. These guys had credentials, they had success, they had careers, and they really wanted to live in the gospel. And so I went and I spoke to them about the gospel in a midlife crisis because we all were entering that phase of life, 40 years old or so. And I shared with them what I've come to call my lack, my my sanctified lack of ambition. My sanctified lack of ambition. Now, I was kind of hesitant to share that with these guys. I'm a fellow Vanderbilt graduate. You guys are doctors. You're lawyers. Some of you have published books. And I'm telling you, I have a sanctified lack of ambition. What does that mean? I shared this, I'll tell you as well, with our ruling elders some time ago in a performance review. (laughs) I have a sanctified lack of ambition. You can imagine, that caused some concern. Are you lazy? 
Of course I am. Aren't you? Dads, you know, you can imagine if a young man is pursuing your daughter and wants to marry her and you're asking him questions. What are you going to do as a career? What, how are you going to support the family that, Lord willing, you'll have with my daughter? Well, don't worry about that, sir. I have a sanctified lack of ambition. <laughs> well, then you'll just have to go marry somebody else's daughter, won't you? Found in Jesus, Paul has a sanctified lack of ambition. He is marked from head to toe with worldly confidences, and he says it all amounts to nothing. Nothing. A sanctified lack of ambition means I don't want to care about credentials. I don't want to care about opinions. I don't want to care about stepping stones or climbing ladders. I don't want to care about the approval of that person or the respect of that person. And I sure don't want to care about and cling to the guilt of my own sin. It means that I simply want to be where God calls me to be, doing what God calls me to do, and that's good enough. That's good enough. I count everything as loss. Loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. The world has all manner of confidences that it will offer to you. And it's all rubbish. It's all rubbish. What do you have that you absolutely, positively cannot live without? One thing only. Jesus. Father, we pray that you would grant to us that we might believe that. That we might believe that Jesus is enough. Would you grant to us that we might put aside the foolishness of our worldly confidences and that we might believe that the gain we have in the gospel is all that we need. I pray that you would strengthen our faith, even as we come to your table together. I pray that you would strengthen our faith to believe this gospel and to rest in it, to know that to be found in Jesus is the only place that matters. To be found in Jesus is all that we need. We pray in His name. Amen.